You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Michael Devolano. Michael is an entrepreneur, angel investor, and author of Building Your Wolfpack, How to Unleash the Collective Power of Your Community. We talk about navigating the entrepreneur journey, fostering strong communities, and leveraging the power of collaboration. Diving deep into the Koretsu model and analyzing the pros and cons for both entrepreneurs and investors. We talk about the history of the Wu-Tang Clan and the Bored Ape Club. Now let's dive into this week's episode so you can start optimizing your wolf pack today. Let's begin. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Michael, I'm super excited to have you on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. I've known you for years, been a good friend, a good supporter of the show. Michael, for our audience, can you give a little background of your career up into this point? And also tell a little story about that for our listeners watching this on YouTube, that crazy background you got. Well, my name is Michael Devolano. Thanks for having me, Sean. We've worked on a few different things together. I think you've been a judge on Founders Pack pitch events, and you've been on a, both. Of, I think you've been on both my podcasts. So my first book I wrote was called Automate and Grow, and that was really my methodology around building digital products and automating marketing sales support. And then I started growing Founders Package. So that's like a community of pre-seed and seed stage startups, and then investors in those same type of companies. And we have the Wolfcast. And so the background, though, is for the Bible of Founders Pack, which is form your own pack. So I came up with my second book on October 31st, Halloween. So nobody can ever forget that special date. And form your own pack is my current book. My background, various startups been involved with or started for most of the last 12, 13 years. I was either a CTO or working on a project basis, either on building digital products like SaaS or app for entrepreneurs and obviously advised a lot of startups also as, as a result of some of those relationships. And then also a Salesforce consultant. So an interesting combination. And then most recently, I was a CTO at a business finance company, and that was a PE-backed company. And we were automating and scaling a business really rapidly. And I learned some interesting stuff from that. So that's actually led to my current venture, which is Ops.ai. And Ops is my AI startup. Initially, first product is a data marketplace. And second product is a cold outreach platform. And then we're currently getting ready to launch our first generative platform called Valet, which is like a single generative business interface that connects those two and then a whole bunch of other stuff. So instead of us being the button pushers and software as a service, you can focus on telling it uh, the outcomes that you want. Build me a campaign, build me a list, create this automation. So the goal being users can focus on relationships and content rather than being uh, the monkey in the cage pushing buttons on a screen. Okay, so it sounds like you're a little busy. I'm building a fun life. Look, let's day. talk about your new book. It came out August 31st. Yeah, October. What's the October 31st, my apologies. What's Halloween. the goal of that book? <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I mean, why is China? We don't really celebrate Halloween that much. <laughs> Other than going to the neighbors that have the bowl of candy in front of them and just taking one or two, that's about all my celebration. <laughs> but tell us about the book and what's the goal of the book and why is forming a wolf pack? Why is that important? Excellent. Thank you for that question. So the idea behind Form Your Own Pack really came about because I had knowledge of this Japanese business model. And I didn't realize it seems like everybody's forgotten known as the Kuretsu. 
And the kuretsu is really interesting in Japan. It's a common structure for businesses. And it's, it's really an effort by corporations to have a robust corporate structure. And there's a saying in Japan that businesses don't go bankrupt. And part that's because of the ethos of Japanese. And there's some really interesting characteristics of the kuretsu. Uh, they have these independently operating businesses and they basically have collaboration and support one another. So they have cross shareholdings. They have trading companies that open new markets for them and assume financial risks. And they organize around common assets. So they organize around real estate, banking, and insurance. And then they'll have these Friday CEO and president's lunch clubs where they meet cross-company in private to have frank feedback, and they look for opportunities to cooperate. They'll actually send each other management and engineering talent across company without any qualms to help solve problems. Knowing that, I look at that and I go, well, startups are lonely and tough, and let's consider this as a way to scale. So let's reimagine it for startups, basically. So that sounds pretty fantastic. But I'm wondering, is that a cultural thing? Will that work in the States? And also, what are the pros and cons? Because it can't all be good. Yeah. And I think I talk about, obviously, the positive characteristics. And then I also say, here's the challenges, because the Kuretsu, the biggest Kuretsu have gotten so large, and they have a practice, as I mentioned, they actually have, if you look at Japan, they never really fluctuate above 2.5% unemployment. And part of it is people are very fanatically dedicated to their companies and the companies are loyal, but they work very hard for the common good. The downside to that is sometimes you just get stuck in this bureaucratic quagmire and the companies aren't innovative. We want to be aware of that and have issues though of the bigger Kuretsu, right? These are giant conglomerate companies. I think it's like when you're starting out, if you think of how to have what we call three wolves in your pack, let's reimagine for startups a small nimble pack and think of a mastermind of investors and advisors a community of customers, and then partnerships, how you can partner and, or have cross shareholdings with other founders and help each other with complementary offerings and maybe common customers as an example. And then the question of whether it can work is actually interesting because I have a whole chapter. We look at these seven organizations. Some of them are corporations and some of them are more collaborative groups that are more American examples or Western examples that have had tremendous success, but have common characteristics with the Kuretsu. So I say, well, they're not all, they don't all look the same, but they have the same beneficial characteristics in some way and that they can, they collaborate or they build a conglomerate structure. So it's, I think it's not only doable, but it's, it's actually how they've grown. <laughs> You've mentioned three types of wolves in the wolf pack. Mm-hmm. Why only three? What's the importance of each one of them? I mean, I'm sure you could probably think of other ways, but I think, first of all, you need a close, trusted circle of people. And I consider that kind of your own mastermind. And maybe that's people that have invested in you and have certain skill sets, diverse skill sets that you want to leverage. Think of it as a board of advisors or a board of directors of your company, even a startup. I say a community of customers because what you want is you want people to buy into your mission and help spread the message and be committed to your product as opposed to it just being transactional. And the most successful companies and organizations of the last 15 years have really invested heavily in building community. And some of them have been able to scale without spending as much as competitive that don't have that ethos. And then partnerships, I've always been really big on business development around partnership. Let's look for opportunities to share technology, talent, data, and relationship. I think you do that with either you have cross shareholdings or there's complementary services and you don't have the cost of acquisition as Sean is one of the toughest things for startups. Okay, product market fit, but don't blow your brains out acquiring customers and make it profitable is tricky, right? For startups, having partnerships can be a force multiplier, whether that's affiliates, 
or that's like complementary services. It can be just a digital partner, it could be a content partner, it could be social media. I think you have to determine that for yourself. But I think those are just the broad categories that I've observed or help companies scale. I want to circle back to this later, but right now I'm really curious. There's one thing in your book that really caught my attention. Okay. And that was, well, actually there's many things in the book and for <laughs> everyone out there, it's a, it's a great read. What does YC, Y Combinator and the Wu-Tang Clan have in common? <laughs> well, I think both of them community was very integral to their success. So if you look at Y Combinator, when, when I use it, actually a LinkedIn post that Marty Kaus is from Pylon because I thought it really epitomized it. It's we have this cohort of two or 300 companies. You're all working 90 days to impossibly scale your company. And it's like what he says, it's not about the money and it's not about anything other than you have this community where there's accountability, but you're cross-promoting and you're helping each other. And the same thing with the Wu-Tang Clan. If you look at the Wu-Tang Clan, there were nine distinct members and they had a classic album, which is the 36 Chambers. But then they immediately almost all had solo careers and they continued to support each other through the solo career. So in the same way, like it was that community, instead of being competitive with one another or saying, oh, you're not being loyal to the main project, they thought it the other way around. So similar to Y Combinator, they support each other's projects, either producing or providing lyrics or write songwriting for them and then promoting them in their media ventures. So it was really interesting. I think that's the commonality is that partnership and community aspect because Wu-Tang fans are very, very loyal because of the ethos of Wu-Tang, right? There's like martial arts and hip hop and a distinctive sound and then all these crazy characters amongst the nine people, right? And I think Y Combinator is very similar. You have very diverse founders that are coming in and but the commonalities are all trying to reach this impossible goal. Speaking of crazy characters, in your book, you also mentioned the Bored Ape Club and Mm -hmm. the success of them. Can you talk about the secret behind their popularity? I mean, this again is really a couple of things that I observed, right? Like one, the community is how they scaled, right? So it's this exclusive community. People are like, oh, you're just buying monkey JPEGs. But what they really built into NFT, like blockchain technology, wasn't the real thing. It was that they all had a unique asset. It looked similar, but all very unique. They had 10,000 unique identities. And then they all have private access to all these benefits. So it's like this private members club. So it really created a sense of a little bit of scarcity, but uniqueness to it, but also commonality. So when you think of it, it was the community that scaled it. And that's what created value is, yes, there's scarcity, but there's commonality. And then there's this unique aspect of this velvet rope around the world, right? Where they have their own festival, they have access to special events, and they support each other's other projects. So I think it's a pretty modern example, I think, that people miss that out because they get wrapped up in, well, what is this silly digital thing? But that's not what the value was, and that's not why it scaled so fast and why it became so valuable. It was really the community specificity. I'm worried because I, I would think so many other groups would see the value in having a community. I mean, sure. even universities, you hear about Harvard alumni, Stanford alumni. Right. Yep. The, yes. the universities that seem to have the best community are the ones that seem to have the best alumni that totally. are the most sought after. Yep. How come other universities, how come other accelerator programs aren't focused more on the community aspect? I mean, I think everybody thinks they have community. and it's, it's not an easy thing, obviously, right? So it's really like, how do you create a culture that people buy into? And you might have an idea and you try to attract people to that culture, but maybe there's something flawed in that or selfish, right? Or that people don't resonate with or they resonate for the wrong reasons. Maybe there's just a lot of reasons why community cannot work. And some people think it's just like throwing up a discord and letting people go in and chat and letting it self-organize. But I think the best ones have almost like a public statement of this is why we're 
we're doing this, why, why we have this venture or why we have this organization. And if you're a part of it, this is what it means to be a part of it. And this is the benefit. And this is what we expect of you. So I think we explore like if you're going to be successful at building community, it's really has to be about raising that flag and hopefully drawing to you the right customers in this case or partners can also be a part of it. But it's not a straight line, is it? It's always weird. I think the, the community is always a reflection usually of the founders, right? So it's, That's um, deep. it's, it's an interesting of, exploration. You can really go down a rabbit hole. <laughs> speaking of, of groups that might have flaws, you also mentioned the three dark triad and how that could destroy a pack. Well, what is the three dark triad and how did they each one of those, how could they destroy? So the, the dark triad is like this, these characteristics that you want to kind of screen for, right? So there's a test that you can, it's like a person, a negative personality traits of narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopath. So I say in the book, if you're forming a mastermind, so how many of those do you have? Uh, I'm pretty low on them. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, you should do the test. Like anybody can do the test online. You can search for it. And I think it's really, if you're really seriously putting, we, we put very little thought sometimes into who our co-founders are. We think of our weakness, right? So you think of, oh, I don't know how to code. So I need a coder. And that's what a lot of projects start with. And wait, maybe you need a designer really, because just because you don't even understand what the coder does, you think that's what you need, right? Or I think if you look at one of the stories that highlights the PayPal mafia, right? And the PayPal mafia is really interesting. And my friend, Jimmy Sony writes about that in his book, Founders, and we reference that. What's interesting about PayPal is you had all these different figures that were all unique. There's almost like lots of competition within the group and this creative process that was not, there was always tension, but they always had respect for each other's skills and contribution. And as a result, every at various points in the company where PayPal would have failed, different people stepped up to the plate and helped save them. It's interesting. So the problem is if you had a, someone in there with like high Machiavellianism or high narcissism, that's the opposite of respecting other people. That's like trying to take advantage of. Them. So I think it's like a pretty useful thing if you do it and you say, hey, you should do this and I want to know. And it, it's almost like it's not the end all and be all. If you might find a psychopath in your midst, you're not going to want to be a partner with them. <laughs> oh, I don't want any equity with you. <laughs> I don't trust that. I wonder if you could actually have that as a screening test for, not? for a job. I mean, who knows? The jobs are, I don't know. I don't know if I believe in hiring people. I mean, do you? <laughs> I would rather have partners. I would rather have close group of co-founders. What's interesting, I think, with people are talking and using AI and trying to figure out what that means. And I, I had this idea of the five-person company, but Peter Diamandis one up to me and he said, the next billion-dollar company is going to be founded by three people. So if you think of all the repetitive jobs that, you know, and even with ops, I'm basically targeting roles that are highly repetitive, but complex skills that you were trying to duplicate and you can't do a great job across humans, but it's great for AI, right? So then you could eliminate, in a sense, the need to hire people that are, are all going to implement it differently and maybe not be trustworthy. So I'd rather not have to screen them. I'd just rather have something that does the, does the tool and then have my close pack of people that we, we have a chief, let's say you have a chief AI officer, you have a chief revenue officer and you have a chief operations or chief of staff person. So that thing is neat. We're entering a really exciting era where if you had those three people, you might not need anybody else if you have partners and you have a community customer and have a lot of cool AI tools. That's fascinating. What do you think is going to be the future then for designing the growth of a company? 
Because right now, you look at financial performance, it's yep. higher salesperson, higher account executive, yep. higher man. You have it all lined out with your hires over the next 18, 24 months. Mm-hmm. You think that's all going to be just fan my, I don't know, membership to this and, AI device? Yep. Yeah, it's a good question. I think in the initial term, like if you even look at the problems I'm solving with ops, I'm targeting really something that might be done today by a founder in a smaller company or an SDR or a marketing manager, all three. And so that's the initial skills, if you will, that I'm trying to teach the AI instead of teaching people. Because if you look at SDRs today, it's really silly that they spend maybe 10% of their time actually selling. And they're doing most of their time researching and they're trying to run campaigns. And then they're getting frustrated by the complexities of getting the right message to the right person at the right time. So to me, that first part, if I take it off their plate and I just let them think of the outcome they want, hey, I want to target this person in this type of company, in this industry, in this country, and this size of company and whether they're funded or not. And the AI says, oh, here's a bunch of records that look like it. And let's generate a campaign and, and email addresses for you and warm them up. Hopefully your SDR can do five or 10x what an SDR they can and take the complexity out of it and let them focus on qualifying the stuff comes in or having relationships with those people that raise their hands. Yeah, I'd like to talk to you about the thing you're doing. And I think the humans will, in those companies, it doesn't mean you won't have sales teams. I think maybe we can just maximize the conversations they're having. Although there are AIs that are trying to take conversations off the plate too with conversational AI. That's wild too. But I mean, I think I would rather have people being creative, having relationships and creating content or products, like focus on creating products that you can monetize. So I I think it's just going to open up new possibilities. I think it's going to be like thinking... Do you want to work in a factory, Sean? Is I feel your like goal- that every day on Zoom? Yeah, well, that well, true. But I think what's worse is if, if you're sitting in a call center and you're grinding it out, dealing with a dialer sending calls to you, or you're you're trying to do these technical, semi-technical, quasi things, and everyone's doing it differently, and you're not having success, and this person is, and it doesn't make it's really tough to repeat what other people are doing, and it becomes myster- mysterious, right? <laughs> or it's like work harder. But that you've we've cre- recreated a factory environment in white collar jobs, what we want now are gold collars, right? We want people thinking and how can I have a better relationship, give a better experience and take repetitive things that are maybe complex and simplify them for people, focus on the outcome and then have the result of talking to more people. I mean, that's the way I'm looking at it. Do you think that accelerators could be reimagined now with AI? Good question. I think they are. Like, I think if you listen to like Jason Calcanis, I think if you go back four or five, six months ago when, well, it's been a year, I think, since ChatGPT came out and that really took something that was terrible, which are chatbots. Everybody hated chatbots. They're useless because they weren't intuitive. They didn't give you the answers you want, but then they put it together with GPT and suddenly this is a really good product. And then it's, well, what else? You look at GitHub and they come up with Copilot. So now Copilot is contributing code and allowing one person to do the code of three to five to 10 people. Who are the early adopters of that? It's people that are in Y Combinator. It's people that are raising money in Silicon Valley. And if you listen to his commentary, for the last years, there's been like a fallout of plain old SaaS, where the valuations have been cut 30, 60, 100%. He scooped up assets. And then there's these new batches and accelerators. And what are they doing? They're not hiring a ton of people. They're using these AI tools every single day, whether it's GitHub's CodePilot, MidJourney, ChatGPT, and there's other tools they're adopting or building. A lot of them are building. But I mean, I think that accelerators already are providing the example of how you would build a business that's going to scale with less capital and less people. And that's the kind of the what he was talking about was really interesting. It was like, wow, this is, I got five people and it looks like 50. 
That's crazy because, I mean, some of the people I've interviewed on the podcast, they talk about the days where you need to go out and raise several million dollars to set up the servers, to even implement your idea. Then later, AWS comes, and it seems like right now, a whole nother revolution of cost cutting to get your idea out there. In a sense, like the cost of building software is getting close to, it's not zero, but it's a lot cheaper. And you're right. If it was 20 years ago, you would have to do all this crazy infrastructure stuff. And AWS just said, no, here's virtual compute power. What? Okay, that's crazy. And it was all enabled by high-speed internet. And then they built server technology and it revolutionized a lot of things, right? Compute power, storage on demand and scalable too, right? You're not stuck. Oh no, the server crashed. Like that, you don't hear that. All of AWS has gone down a few times, but <laughs> so now we're, you're right. Like we're now in a, I talk about like the common standard operating procedures of your pack and the ethos that I've put out there is we want to partner or have people in our pack that believe in rapidly prototyping, going talk to real customers and investors right away, because you have the ability through Figma or Adobe to create user experiences, show them to customers, let them touch and feel it and give you feedback, whether they would give you money and get money from them. And it's a very low risk for both sides before you build technology. I think the coding tools aren't like, there's no code platforms, but I think we're getting to the point where we want code, but it's we want it to be faster and tighter. And I think the way you do that is you co-pilot with the human. So I, I think that to answer your question, I think it's totally possible to roll out products, get feedback and figure out if people want to buy them. And I, that's why I think like the skills of A, forming a pack, but also being an entrepreneur are really going to get more and more important. Going back to just the white combinator in that and forming your pack, how big is the optimal size for a wolf pack? That's a good question. I don't know. I've always had the number like four or five in my head. And I think there's a thing that I write about called the Dunbar number. And it says like the max your pack can be is like 150 people. (laughs) I think that's a lot personally. I don't know about you. Some people are able to manage. You and I probably have like pretty big networks. But if I think of the inner circle, three to five people focused on a given project is probably realistically a number that I'm comfortable with. But then there's partnerships. And I've always thought, hey, I need 100 partnerships to really blow this thing up. Maybe that's affiliates. Maybe that's people that are co-selling have common customer but complementary solutions might be integration partners which makes it a lot easier maybe that number is way bigger because of that because it's not about like communicating it's about integrating and then a community if customers could be as big as it wants because it can be self-organizing or something you need to shepherd it probably i mean how you're doing it but maybe your role is creating content great products and communicating what you're doing then you maybe you have a thousand two thousand five thousand but what is their commitment in a sense so the more commitment they are to your project i think that's got to be a smaller group and then the further out it gets from that level of commitment to well maybe a customer is part of a community partners are somewhere in the middle so i, I think it's starts at four and three and four and then goes up to hundred and then maybe thousands just for customers and a thousand for customers right but one thing i'm thinking of with this building your pack if you have the koretsu you'd mention groups going to other companies just being sent over a lot of companies like to stay in stealth mode for a long time where others go i'm gonna go out do market surveys build my product out publicly what's your view of stealth build in public or build in public with a pack? I think that I've observed people building in public can be a really powerful marketing tool. And it also gives sets the expectation that we've done this with ops. It's not perfect. This product's not ready. 
but it's ready enough that I can get your feedback and you can help shape the destiny. And I'm hoping people have buy-in on that. And it also is like a reality show. <laughs> so people are like observing how the pie is made in the factory, right? <laughs> so then they're like, oh, the, one day they're going to look at this beautiful pie. <laughs> so I think there's definitely benefit to building in public. I really question stealth mode. When you look at stealth mode on someone's website or on their LinkedIn profile, you're like, this is vaporware. It might be the same thing as building in public, right? Where maybe this is not a real product. Maybe it's rapidly or an idea, but the expectation of people that might, how do you flock a community around a stealth product? Now, then again, you see there are products with hype and anticipation. I'm not a marketing genius there, but I've seen both work. But to me, it's like if you have zero budget and you're trying to build a business, build in public. People on Twitter and LinkedIn will see your story, respect the difficulties and the vulnerability. And I have a hard time with it, to be honest with you, like trying to think of showing the pain that I've gone through some days. I I haven't done it a lot of days. And that might've been the most compelling stuff I could have put out, right? Like I had times where I'm like the first versions of ops. I'm like, why are these simple things not working? This is never going to work. I feel catastrophic. And you get, the, if I had shared that emotionally out there, more people might have bought into what I was doing. So it's, it's interesting. It's a tough skill to learn, but I don't know. I think building in public is an inexpensive way to get attention and get people to buy in and start drawing people to your cause. Speaking of failing, I think my favorite quote from your book was, accept the risk of making the wrong decision. Can you go deeper into this? And I'm not sure if I ripped that off from blitzscaling or not, but it was around the blitzscaling idea, right? So if you read the book by Reed Hoffman, it's been a, in some ways, the blueprint for Silicon Valley the last 12, 15 years, right? So Reed Hoffman is, was part of the PayPal mafia. Then he went and started LinkedIn, exited LinkedIn to Microsoft for 24, 26 billion. If you know the early days of LinkedIn, it was like they, they did not, they probably still do not support the product. It was not, never a perfect product. And I think what he was the one that really championed scaling quickly by getting updates out and pushing it out. And if it's imperfect, we'll fix it later or we'll patch tape and glue it. I think they exited with three or 400 million users. LinkedIn just crossed, I think, 2 billion. Is it 2 or 1 billion users? So it's crazy. Since Microsoft bought it, they're definitely improved the experience, which is shocking for Microsoft, but they have improved it. That's how rough it was. So I think that that ethos comes from blitzscaling, really, which is just like ship. Get it out there, ship. Don't get stuck in perfectionism. Build momentum and keep keep iterating and make changes. And it's scary because if you have a sucky product, you think, oh, no one's going to love me and come back. But it goes back to that expectation thing. I was going to say, if you're okay with shipping out product and getting that nasty feedback, how much stronger as a founder does your mental tenacity have to be? I mean, your grit has to be at a, a different point. level. What do you think the mental wellness of founders is going to be in the future <laughs> with AI, quick iteration, blitz, everything moving at lightning speed? I mean, we have a horrible education system, Sean. Like we have an education system that grades you and rates you and there's here's A, B, and C or here's 4.0 and then there's people that get 4.5 and it's never about like experimentation and iteration and what's the next thing and figuring out what works, right? There's not an experimental mindset. And the best thing about the scientific method is really, oh, here's a guess. Here's a hypothesis. And then I'm going to go up and try to prove it. Instead, it's, oh, I'm always right. And if you're not right, you can't tell anybody. 
And that's the worst mentality to have. I think to your point, like being able to adapt to chaos and uncertainty is the ability to have an idea, iterate and not have it like be catastrophic to your emotional well-being. Like even talking about your emotional well-being, like, oh, what's the mental health of this person to me is like totally the wrong avenue. It's like you're constantly navel gazing and introspection as opposed to people that go out there and they just, here's an idea. I'm going to try it. I'm going to keep pounding on it. And I give myself permission. If it's not perfect, I'll keep going. But I, I think the one leads to success. And there's this misconception of people that have bought into this other mentality of I have to be perfect. And it's you got it because you were given it or what you look like or who you are. And no, the people that are successful are, are tolerant of themselves and tolerant of messes. And they just plow through chaos. That's what I've observed. Do you have any stories that you could share of maybe I don't know, throwing stuff out there that was too early or plowing through chaos or anything. I mean, probably many dead babies in that sense. <laughs> There's things you're like, oh, this is my thing. And then it, sometimes I, I notice I have this, people have this tolerance. I'm the same way. Like I'm speaking for myself, like where you give up on someone, then someone else does the thing you want. Right. So I tell the one story in the book of General Magic. And I, I think this, the, the cautionary tale of General Magic is these guys came out with, there was no such thing as smartphone in 1996. These guys created a handheld device with a touchscreen that operated over wireless networks. And they had these brilliant team together. They raised 96 million bucks and it, then nobody bought it. Now, the, the sad thing about it is the reason nobody bought it was they were probably six or seven years too early just for the wireless network because it was really enabled by faster wireless networks and data only. And data on networks didn't exist. If they had just toughed it out and didn't say, oh, this is the end of the world and put all their eggs into it, they developed things that were benefited by two different companies. And it's a really interesting story because the two geniuses, two of the many geniuses, like, for example, General Magic, I don't know if you know what Nest is, right? So you got the you got your doorbell. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the founder of Nest was in the lab. He was one of the guys at General Magic. Why didn't General Magic get to benefit from that? Because they blew up and quit. So what happens? He goes off and starts that company and then Google buys them for, I don't know, what was the exit? Was a bill? I, I don't even know what the exit was. We should look that up. But, you know, and that's just one of the tales. And I tell the other really important tale around smartphones that the two major smartphone platforms, the two guys that are like central to those worked in the same lab at General Magic. <laughs> You're like, if you just had this tolerance for the fact that, okay, maybe we were too early, but we can survive and keep this team together, they would have been a massive company in six, seven years. And instead they weren't. So I think, I don't know, I think that's a really important tale of be tolerant of the imperfections and don't, don't just say, oh, this is impossible. Cause the guy that founded it, if he had just had that different mindset, he had all the right people, all the right technology was just a little early. I wonder how much of that was the team versus the investors given up. Well, I mean, it was a little of both, right? And I, I think after the dot-com crash of 2001, Silicon Valley itself changed and it learned. And I think a lot of that were the PayPal guys. So they all exited PayPal and they had, if you look at Peter Thiel funding ventures around that time through Founders Fund, Reed Hoffman through LinkedIn and then Greylock Fund. They, Mark Andreessen, another one, right, with created the Mosaic browser. The commonality of all those guys was they recognized, they go, well, wait, this is still one giant community called Silicon Valley. The talent didn't disappear into the woodwork and people can learn from their mistakes. What was our mistake? We all went public too early. We didn't incubate these companies long enough. We didn't create our own financing methods so that we weren't at the whims of 
knee-jerk reaction of being a public company. So you hit it on the head. The investors were a big part of it, right? And so if you look at the story of Silicon Valley itself, I think is they recognize that's a pack. And the PayPal mafia was a pack within the pack. And they said, look, you got to cooperate. You got to be patient and incubate. And yes, there's a cutoff maybe, but that doesn't mean that people are bad people all of a sudden. This is still talent. They still have great ideas and we want to continue to foster this. And I think that's really a big part of the story. And yeah, there's a lot of companies that burn up in the atmosphere, but then those founders can come up with another idea. And that's not what happened with General Magic. The guy that started that went in like retirement pretty much. Michael, we're about on time there. Sure. Is there anything else you want to tell our audience? And also, how can they find out about your book? How can they get a copy? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's on Amazon. You can, if you're a Kindle Unlimited subscriber right now, or you even sign up for a 30-day copy, you can actually get it for $0 under Kindle Unlimited. Otherwise, 10 bucks on Kindle, which I use the app, the Kindle app on my mobile device, my Android. And then you could, a lot of people like paperback, that's like 15 bucks. I think what I'm hoping people take away from Form Your Own Pack is that you can create whatever pack serves you the best. You can determine what the purpose of it is. And yes, we compete, but we also compete as groups. And if you look at evolutionary wise, humans are built to succeed through packs and by building technology. So whether it's tools or more advanced tools as technology, that is the story of human success. And that's why humans are so successful. And there's always going to be conflict and tension, but you don't want to face that alone when other people are working together. I think it's really important that we all figure out what our pack looks like, what our mission is. And I encourage people to take the you know book and make it their own. And that's what I'm hoping people do. And I hope that over a period of 10 years, like there's a million people that start up ventures with this in mind, that when they start their venture, they're building their pack of their close mastermind, their community of customers and partners ships to scale. That's fantastic. Michael, thank you for being a guest on this week's episode. When I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast, I'm a mid-market investment banker based on mergers, acquisitions, growth capital. Connect with me on LinkedIn and go to thesiliconvalleypodcast.com to check out this episode's our archives and our future, what we're working on. So Michael, once again, I got to thank you for being a guest on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. Thanks for being part of my pack, Sean. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.